This morning, you don't have to open to Ezekiel chapter 36. I know you know it's there. (laughs) And you can probably quote it with me. I want to accomplish two things this morning. I want to answer a question that everyone should have been asking all along the way of our teaching through Ezekiel chapter 36. If you are joining us and this message is already in progress and you weren't not a part of those that series of teaching, all, all the things that we do teaching-wise are available on the Internet. You can go online and download those things, listen to them online or however you'd like to. And we would greatly encourage you to do that. But we had taught through a series for several weeks about this new life that God has given us and the call that we have to walk in newness of life. And there were some great promises that were made that God has made available to us this incredible life. But along the way, we should have all been asking a question. And I'll get to that in just a moment. The second reason that I want us to listen carefully this morning is I want to seize this opportunity to yet again promote the Book of the Month Club. Um, So if you get sick of me saying this, uh, too bad. Um, Because it is so vitally important. We are a people awash in a sea of information. The problem is it typically tends to be meaningless information, the wrong information, contrary to truth information. So for us to carve out time where we will sit with quality teaching from the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to make these truths real in us. There's not a more valuable thing that you can do with your time. So what we do today is I want to highlight, I'm going to come back to those two books that I mentioned to you at the end of the message because they would very much be at the center of understanding how do we walk this new life out in this location here on planet Earth. So the title of the message is Walking in a Fallen World. Now here's the question. If Ezekiel 36 is God's indicative intention, right? God intends to do this. All these statements, God saying, I will, I will, I will. They are promises, they are guarantees from God. If all these things are true, then why am I still struggling with sin? Why is the Christian life not always a picnic? Why is it not always easy? Why is it not even always attractive to me? Why am I mired and slowed down and entangled in areas in my life? Now, now quite honestly, and I hope we'll be honest here in the beginning of the message here, otherwise you're going to waste your time this morning. There is, there is triumph in God. We spoke about it last week, the incredible triumph that comes to us through the cross and the resurrection. There is great triumph in God, but the believer in this world is not in a position where he can act as though everything in his life is triumphant. And only the person who is extremely out of touch with his own life, which, by the way, is many Christians. Many Christians don't put significant emphasis on ever applying the truth of God. So they, they stare at things out there And seldom look at what's going on in here. So they're not honest with themselves. And I think if you'll be honest with yourself, then you have to ask the question. Yeah, yeah, I was asking that question. I was wondering if these things are true. We had these broad, sweeping promises in Ezekiel, right? Can we rehearse them again? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be cleansed 
from all your uncleannesses and your sins and your idolatry. Really? Really? God's going to sprinkle clean water from, on me and I'm going to be cleansed? Let me pick on the harder subject, perhaps, of my idolatries. My desires towards something else more than my desires toward God. That's what idolatry is. I'm going to be cleansed of that. Really, that's true. I will remove the heart of stone, that, that hardness in you that doesn't want to cooperate with me. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and write my laws upon your heart. This is what God said. Anybody along the way, as we were trying to apply these things in our lives, stop and ask the question, really? Because it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes I feel like my heart is as hard in an area as it ever could be. That's the truth of how I feel sometimes. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to obey my commands. Is that really true? God would do this and the cause of it would be, I will walk in these ways and I will obey God. Now, how do we apply these things? These are broad, sweeping promises of God. How do we apply this to our lives? Question. Are these absolutes that are to be realized at a 100% level by every believer from the moment a person is born again? These are things that God has said. Does that mean that the moment you are born again, because this is all the I wills of God, I will do, I will do, I will do, I will do. So when you get born again... What the Bible doesn't say is, you know, you're going to ramp up to these things becoming true. It doesn't say that. It's not as though, you know, when you really get your walk down and you've been a Christian for many years and you're mature and you've been walking in some of these things, then these things will become true about you. That's not what the Bible says. If the Bible came close to saying that, it would introduce us to legalism at an incredible level. Everything would be put on the basis of what I do. But God says, I'm going to do these things in spite of you, I'm going to be the one who's going to be found faithful to do these things in your life. So if that's true, then does it mean that the, these truths and these promises are going to be realized in our life from the moment anybody is born again by the Holy Spirit? These things will be 100% experienced at that moment from now on in your life. Because if that's the case, some of us may be wanting to ask for a refund at this moment. Because that's not how it's felt for us, is it? And listen, this principle of looking at this is true in other categories. You know, we have incredible promises about Jesus bearing our iniquities upon the cross. And the chastisement for our sins was upon him. And by his stripes, we are what? Healed. By his stripes, it doesn't, by his stripes one day you will be healed. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, by his stripes, we are healed. Now, what do you do with that? Does that mean that the Bible teaches that every Christian, every Christian who is in Christ, who has been born again, not every Christian who ramps up and does well enough, because these are things God has done. So they're either true or they're not true. You don't ramp up to them. So does it mean that every Christian should be walking around today in divine health in their body. In this moment right now, none of us should be sick. Because the Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. So do you, do you have sickness in your body? 
If the Bible says you're healed. Now listen, I'm, I'm pulling on a teaching that I bet some of you have been exposed to. You know, the idea that the Bible teaches you are healed. The Bible does teach that you are healed. How do you appropriate that? How do you live in that? Because the reality is a bunch of us have been sick in the last couple of months. Something wrong with you? Something wrong with your walk? Did you do something wrong? Is it wrong for a Christian to ever be sick? What about statements like, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. What do you do with that promise? When you look into your life and you find out, I don't feel real free in that area. Or that area right there. That's a real struggle for me. I go down in that area. Some of you here this morning with an area in your life that really it's calling the shots right now, isn't it? I mean, you're feeling out of control in that area. So what does a Christian do in applying these things, in interpreting how these truths should be used in our lives? We, we, if, if we don't interpret the Bible correctly in this area, we're bound to be discouraged, disillusioned, because the Bible's making these claims that don't seem to fit how I'm really walking this thing out. And at some point, you're just going to give up on applying it at all. Because here I've been trying to walk around all these years claiming that by his stripes I'm healed and I keep getting sick. Or I've got an illness that doesn't ever leave my body. And I keep trying to claim it, claim it, use it, apply it. And eventually, what do you have to do with that? You have to give up on it. Or go crazy trying to make use of it. Or fall under the condemnation that you're not making it happen. Does everybody traffic here with me for a moment? When, when Christ imparts righteousness to you, is that something that you ramp up and earn? You know, do we get the, the righteousness of Christ imparted to us based on our performance and therefore you know, we're, we're 70% righteous, 80% righteous? A few years from now, I'm hoping to be 87%. got my report card the other day. I'm going to be 87% righteous coming up. Okay, now listen. If that's how righteousness comes to us, then that's also how healing comes to us as well. Because it's all in the same package. It's the Son of God taking upon Himself the sins of humanity, the brokenness of humanity, and then imparting to us what He has accomplished on our behalf. So if, if I get righteousness that way, then I get healing that way. But I, but I don't get righteousness that way, do I? I get 100% of the righteousness of God. Well, then I must also get 100% of the healing of God, right? Then why are you sick? This is not a message about everybody walking in divine health. I don't think you should be walking in divine health. If every Christian walked in divine health, what would be the need for gifts of healing? When you got saved, you became 100% righteous in the eyes of God. If you got saved and you became 100% healed in the eyes of God and in your reality, then the church would not need the gift of healing. Why do we need the gift of healing? Because there's sick people with us. And they're Christians. So how, how do we take these promises of God that are so broad and sweeping and apply them into our realities? Well, that's what I want to try and do today against the backdrop of this new walk. We've been given this new walk, this new way of living. Turn to Romans chapter 7.
Romans chapter 7. Let me just start at the beginning here. Where I really want to spend our time is in Romans 8. But there's a little context leading into Romans 8 that would be important for us. Paul says in verse 21, Romans 7. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, if if you are a studier of the Word of God, then then you will know Romans chapter 7, if you've studied theologically Romans chapter 7, you would know that there are some real challenges in understanding all that's in that chapter. There would be questions about Paul describing his experience here that would drive some to believe, well, Paul's describing the experience of, of his experience before he knew Christ. His experience with sin before he knew Christ. And then there would be some who would say, no, 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 Paul is describing his experience after he knew Christ. And this is a genuine experience for a believer. Uh, there would be some who would say, no, Paul is creating an example, kind of a straw man that he's drawing some teaching points out of. Yeah. I understand where everybody arrives at those things, and there are points, and when you stick Romans chapter 7 next to Romans chapter 8, and you cross-connect them, and you go, okay, if I conclude this, well, then that's a problem over here. I conclude this, and that's a problem over here. Uh, so there's some challenges here. But what I think you cannot get away from is the Bible clearly addresses... The conversation of the New Testament Christian is a person who is dealing with sin in his life. So much of what Paul writes to any of the churches is based in the fact that the churches are struggling with sin. They're doing something wrong and they're needing to be corrected. This is why we have so much teaching in the New Testament. So sin is a player in the life of a Christian. And I believe it would not be out of bounds for there to be the the cry that Paul has in these verses for the Christian. Oh, wretched man that I am. There would be categories in our lives that if you've paid attention to and you've attempted to walk in the Spirit in those areas, you will find that they don't cooperate. They don't surrender. They don't come out hands lifted up and saying, Oh, oh. You want to be righteous in that area. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm half-packed already. I'll be gone in a few moments. Is that how sin is in your life? Now, we'll say that there are some sins that are kind of like that. I mean, I can remember back getting saved, and in the first couple of years of my life, there was, there was so much external garbage that was going on in me. You know, just foul-mouthed, uh, disrespectful teenager, um, you know, drugs, alcohol, smoking, and, and, and like a tidal wave, those things. Just God just came in and just blew those things away. I mean, I got saved. Never, never did drugs again after getting saved. Never went out and got drunk again after getting saved. Just God just blew those things away. Now, now I'll say this in fairness to all of us in our experience being a little bit different. That may not have been your experience. I'm just telling you that was mine. Because there were other areas in my life that weren't intending to go down without a fight. So if those categories were yours, maybe for you it's like, man, alcohol was, man, it was, 
it was my wretched man than I am category. Okay, it wasn't that for me. But it doesn't mean that should be true of everybody. Because for me, it took me a few years. Those external things, they cleaned up pretty quickly. And then all of a sudden, I got to be about 19 years old. And it's almost like God was peeling back the next layer of who I was. And then he revealed to me issues of the heart, motivations. Keith, can I introduce you to why you do the things you do? Oh, that was one of the worst experiences of my life. It was God showing me the good things, the good things in my life. You know, God had been a Christian for a few years by the time I was 19 years old. So I, I had learned that there were certain valuable things about being a Christian. There were certain ways in which you interacted with people. There were certain things that the church and people that were Christians called good. And all of a sudden you begin to want to do those things. And about that time, God begins to show me issues like pride. Have you ever thought about why you do that? Oh, I know it's a good thing that you're doing. But the reason why you do it stinks. And sometimes you don't get in touch with that. Because if it's a good thing you're doing, it's a good thing I'm doing. (laughs) I mean, how can you find fault with me? I'm doing a good thing. Well, the Holy Spirit can come along and say, yeah, but you do it for such prideful reasons. You do it to be noticed by people. You act that way because you're jealous, Keith. That's why you do that. You're jealous and you compete with people. You you do that because you have a terrible case of the fear of man in you. You know, God just begins, almost like at some point, I, I literally do remember getting to the point where I was telling God, okay, God, enough. <laughs> don't tell me any, I don't want to know me anymore. I, I know enough about me and I got enough problems to work on for years I don't want to know any more about me. And it just kept coming. More ways. It's like, no, 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 no. Keith, I'm not done yet. And, you know, take me into moments and into conversations and into settings where, you know, during the setting, holding hands in a circle of prayer, awaiting the launching of the mother of all prayers about to come from my lips that will impress everybody in the meeting. And God sort of showing me. Do you see what you're about to do? It's like it just ruined every moment I could be in. Because I felt like everything I was doing was for such sinful reasons and such self-promoting reasons. Now, I, I assume that no one around me knew that. They, they didn't realize that, boy, wow, that's why you do that, huh? Because I, I think I had figured out you want to look like you're doing the right thing and you'd like to look like you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. So I had figured that part out. No one's going to you know, be impressed by me if they know that I'm, I've got some private ambition going on here, trying to sell you something that won't be impressive so make sure that's not known and god just began to pull back layer after layer after layer i got to a point i can literally remember sitting in the parking lot on veterans highway in my car crying just in tears now i didn't say oh wretched man that i am who will set me free from this body of death i didn't say that but i sounded just like it i was frustrated i was disgusted with myself I had wanted these things to go away and they were not cooperating. I mean, they were like cement pillars in the ground. And when I pushed on them, they didn't budge. Now, you got any issues in your life like that? If if you haven't discovered those yet, this is the best thing I can tell you. If you're just thinking, no, no, man. You know, I'm kind of like the other categories you said. You know, the cursing, the drinking, the smoking, that. Yeah, just, man, when I got serious about God, dude, 
Yeah, I thought that too. Until God took me to the next layer and showed me some deeper issues in my life. See, those are the ones that you're going to cry uncle over. The other ones are kind of child's play. You know, they're going to go away. God's going to come in, boom. You just lose interest in some of them. Like, hey, I'm about this. I'm not about that anymore. I'm about this. But some of it traffics with you. And I can very easily believe that for the Apostle Paul, there were, there were issues for him. He was a man where he wanted to cry uncle. and wanted to say, oh, man, how does this struggle come to an end? Well, thanks be to God. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is an end to this kind of war. There is an end. Thanks be to God that through what Christ has done on the cross and what we have received by the Spirit is the liberating force, the delivering element for the wretched men in our midst. So listen, this, this, is, this is true for the Apostle Paul. It's been true in my life. It's been true in countless other lives. It's, it's true in your life today. Because I suspect there would be some here who are sitting in your own car crying over issues in your life that you just don't feel like you can get rid of. They've been in your life for too long. It's part of who you are. It's controlling. It's manipulative. Listen, this, this drama unfolds with good blazing news. A bright force of the gospel comes. There is an answer. There is a new life that's for the believer. Every one of us are called to experience it. Now, this passage here launches us into chapter 8, right, which is what I want to now take apart. Because in the midst of a man wrestling with his own wretchedness, he now invites us into this new life in the Spirit. And that's, that's what my uh, Bible heads this as. The ESV has the heading over chapter 8, Life in the Spirit. So you've gone from what we were before, apart from Christ now, to life in the Spirit. We've, we've gone into the realm of Ezekiel's promises being richly applied into our lives. And he's going to lay out for us this walking in newness of life. And, and listen, we are going to learn, this is a learning process, learn to walk by the Spirit. Instantaneously accomplished and imputed to us. But we are going to learn to walk in it. There's not an instantaneous thing happening here. You don't get born again and you're 100% good to go. Have you noticed that? There's still some application going on. There's growth. There's wrestling. There's stuff happening in our lives. But it is a walk by the Spirit. It is no longer this external code of rules and our human effort trying to pull it off. It's not that anymore. No matter what religious background we come from. It's a new life. In the Spirit. In the Spirit. Right? Ken Hughes says the theme of chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. Until this point, there have only been two mentions of the Spirit in Romans. Now, chapter 8 mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times. If you're going to walk in this newness of life, it will be because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Unfortunately, in the church age, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. There's too much minimizing of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Too much of it is minimized. This passage introduces us to the reality that it is the life of the Spirit that produces this newness of life in us. 
not just our human efforts. Now, I just want to highlight three sections in here in chapter 8. I'm not going to try to teach all of chapter 8. But the first is the first 11, uh, 11 passages here, 11 verses. Look in chapter 1 with me. We just read a couple of things here. This is, what, this is the day Ezekiel foresaw. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that... This is the vindication of God's holy name. Remember Ezekiel saying that? I'm going to do these things because I'm going to vindicate my name and my people. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a new walk here. There's a new way of doing things. Listen, you and I were born into this world, flesh and blood. We learn to walk life out in the flesh. When you get saved, you have to learn to walk a new way. You have to learn to walk in the Spirit. And you can be saved for many years, many years. And not appropriate the right practices in our lives. So this is a verse that always has application to it. So God has done something through Ezekiel. There's no condemnation now. Why? Because we've been cleansed of all of our sins. There's no presence of stain in us anymore. So there's nothing to condemn us. The record's been wiped clean. I've received the righteousness of Christ. So there's this new beginning. And then the Holy Spirit comes. Look in verse Nine, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is this is big theology right here. This is very helpful. If you're a Christian, you are only a Christian if you have the spirit of God and if he has you. And there's deeper workings of the spirit. But you cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel foresaw a day when God would remove the heart of stone. He would put a new heart in it. He'd write upon it. And all in one package, he would give us the Holy Spirit. This is what Romans is, is explaining to us. So we have these great promises that are given to us. The new life begins with this great solid package from God. However, this new life right now is set in a particular environment. And Paul is realistic. The man who cried out... Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ. And now he begins to explain this new life. And look what he includes. Verse 12 through 17, I'm putting your outline. The current setting of this life in the Spirit. The current setting of this life in the Spirit is a setting where there is friction involved. There's difficulty. There's opposition. It's part of the package. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? All these great promises are made. There's no condemnation for the Christian now. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because the Spirit of God now dwells. In you, all these things are true, but when you continue to read in chapter 8, you're going to find out there's friction in the world and there's limitation 
on how much you will experience in this world of these promises. And both of those things are going to get highlighted for us. We'll walk through those two things today. But look at this first one. The current setting for this life in the Spirit includes an alternative presence. There's something else here. It's not a free ride. There is the work of the Spirit in us, but there's something that the Bible highlights called the flesh that continues to be on this playing field. John Stott says, by flesh, Paul means neither the soft muscular tissue which covers our bony skeleton, nor our bodily instincts and appetites, but rather the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed. Our fallen, egocentric human nature, or more briefly, the sin-dominated self. Now, that's, that's helpful insights into what when, when you come across this term, the flesh, in the Bible. It is describing what you and I were born into. When we were born into Adam, we were born into fallen flesh. And that was where we derived our life. That was the, the basis for who we are. And throughout our life, in this world, that presence remains. Your flesh doesn't go away when you get saved. It's still in the equation. We're still experiencing its effect upon our lives. Now, Stott's words are very helpful here because in, in the modern world that we live in, you know, again, if you watch too much Oprah, you're apt, you're, you're apt to think too much of yourself, quite honestly. This is, this is why, you know, I can't stand the way in which the world tries to solve its problems, particularly Oprah. Um, is because Oprah begins with the premise, and so does most pop psychologists, that inherently man is good. Inherent in man, you know, people are, people are basically good. I mean, that's how we feel about ourselves, and we feel that way about other people, except for the few bad apples that are in the bunch. But that's not how the Bible describes us. And it's not helping you to describe yourself that way. It's not helping you to be politely imperfect. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, we're all willing to admit that we're not perfect. You know? Well, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean nobody's perfect. Oh, that sounds so nice. It's much uglier than that. The Bible describes you in a much more ugly way. This would be more accurate. Fallen, egocentric human nature, sin-dominated self. That would be an accurate biblical description of who I am. Apart from the work of God's grace in my life. Now, if I wake up in the morning and that's how I describe myself versus wake up in the morning and saying, well, well, no one's perfect. And I'm kind of in that bunch. You know, all of us just kind of kind of less than ideal. You know, that's we are just less than ideal. I'm going to go to war differently if I'm just sort of a little bit less than ideal than if I am a egocentric human being. I'm all about me. I wake up in the morning and there's there's an aspect in me that's all about me. It's not about you. It's not about the world. It's not about God. It's about me. I wake up in the morning facing that dude every morning. Now, if you wake up facing the person who's just a little bit less than ideal, you're going to greet your day differently. You're going to interact with your life differently. See, the Bible doesn't introduce you to yourself as a little bit less than ideal. We are selfish sinners. The moment our orbit got detached from orbiting around God, immediately I wanted everything to orbit around me. So that's why you're here this morning. You're here to orbit around me. That's why my children exist. That's why my wife exists. Everything exists to orbit around me. And the second you stop orbiting around me, we're going to have a conflict. 
Right? This is where conflict comes in. It, you know, sadly, very seldom in the body of Christ is conflict over the glory of God. Conflict is a battle for orbit. That's what it is. You're, getting me, you're trying to get me to orbit around you, and I'm trying to get you to orbit around me. And we're fighting over who's going to orbit who. Let's take turns. <laughs> we don't want to do that either. Douglas Moose says, Paul pictures the word sarks in the Greek for flesh as another power of the old age set in opposition to the spirit. Right? This is the setting for the new life. Galatians 5 says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the sarks, this power from the old realm. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, now, depending on how you're understanding Romans chapter 7, that's how Paul described his experience. I'm not doing the things I want to do. I'm doing the things I hate. Well, that wasn't Paul when he was a believer. I don't know. Whether it was or it wasn't, I bet if you could talk to Paul and say, Paul, as a believer, do you ever find yourself doing the things you hate? Yeah. Regrettably, yes. Now, clearly, Galatians chapter 5 is to a believer. And it is warning you that there is an opposing force in this world. And its intention is to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Very similar concept. Here, how does this play out? James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Right? So we live in an environment where there's trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, right? There's nothing in evil that God wants. He cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Why did I end up making that choice? Why did I do that? It was, it was sinful and it was wrong and it brought consequences. Why did I do that? Because something in me wanted to do it. Right? People do what they want to do. Right? So there was a desire in me. The Bible informs me that on the playing field of my experience, there's going to be a realm of desires that are attached to the flesh, to the flesh's motivation, to its reasonings for existence, to what it values. And when temptation shows up, you want to sniff the air for temptation? Do you smell temptation? It will smell like an allurement or an enticement. That's what it will smell like. It won't stink like burned hair. Okay? Some of us think like, it's the devil. It's the devil. Smoke and he's in red pajamas. It's the devil. The devil never looks like the devil. And, and sin never looks like it's a bad deal. Temptation always smells good. It's designed that way because it travels to you through the flesh. It only stinks to your spirit. But when it travels through the nostril of flesh, it smells good. It's like a lure to a fish. I like that word. It's a lure, right? Why does the fish bite that thing? Because it's aggravating him? Because he's against it? He's angry. No. He bites it because it looks like it's going to benefit him. It's food. I want that. Right? Well, this is temptation comes, you know, th- th- there was a water line here and the devil was fishing this morning. You know, bloop, floating down would be a, something that would lure you. You'd look at it and you wouldn't think, oh, that thing's got a hook in it. <laughs> no, thanks. 
stick to my quarter pounder. Uh, you'd look at that and there'd be something about it that you'd say, that, that looks good. <laughs> right? Something in you would be allured to. It would be enticing. And how does something entice you? It entices you by having a little bit of salesmanship to it. It's telling you you're, you'll enjoy this. There's going to be reward. You'll be satisfied. And you begin to feel, that's temptation. That's how temptation comes. So if you want to look in your life to find, where am I being tempted? Don't look for charred, stinky flesh. Right? Look for sweet-smelling things that are appealing to you uniquely, that lure you and entice you. Well, this is helpful because a few weeks ago, now I know I needed to qualify this statement, but I had no intentions of qualifying the five indicatives. But I did tell you guys that you could basically leave from here and go do whatever you want. Remember being told that? Thank you for coming fully clothed this morning. (laughs) All of us are grateful for that. Do what you want is an invitation to get in touch with the reality that God is at work in your heart to will and to do of his good pleasure. So there is, for the Christian, a strong, compelling desire for righteousness. As a matter of fact, I think it is the strongest compelling factor that is in you. But that does not erase the reality that in this world, your flesh still has its own set of desires. And if you're not careful, the first thing that kind of comes popping up in the category of desire, what do you want? The flesh may be the first one to raise its hand and tell you what you want. And you may have to say, okay, well, let me have a full hearing here before I decide what I really want. Okay, thanks for speaking up. Let me just think for a moment here. Does anybody else in the room wants to speak? Yeah, the Holy Spirit wants to speak. And he wants to speak through you. And he's given you a new heart that he wants to write upon so that you actually will own this. It will not be an external, I don't really want that. It's God and I don't want it. No, 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 no. God has changed that. God now wants to do in you so that you are willing and eager to do. So the first thing that might scream at you in a moment of desire might be the desires of the flesh because there still are in this fallen world desires in our flesh, right? Whatever they are, desires for ease, desires to avoid discomfort, you know, you know go confront somebody in their sin, Ba-choom! immediately the flesh goes, well, <laughs> we don't want to do that. And it has all kinds of reasons, good reasons as to why not. You know, you could be misunderstood. You don't know the whole situation. You know, and it's enticing you and luring you not to do something. And you get in touch with the spirit of God and you find yourself doing things that might be very difficult, but you actually want to do them. So there's another set of desires that you do need to be aware of because the flesh is still in this setting on earth. This setting includes aspects of warfare. When I go to walk in newness of life, I am set in a place where there's a war going on. It's not a peacetime environment. I think as Americans, we have a very difficult time trafficking in this. We've just known such peaceful external existence. There's a war in the spirit realm. There's real bullets being fired. There's a mobilization of forces taking place. There's pillaging and destruction all around us. That's what's happening in the spirit world. Listen to what we're called to. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You put to death. I don't have time to unpack the, the language here, but it's, it's huge language. Putting to death, it is an ambitious, radical warfare of putting to death 
the deeds that we see in our life. So I wake up in the morning informed by the fact that in this setting, walking in newness of life means war. It means opposition. It means the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil are active today against us, opposing this new life in the Spirit. So we hear these great promises and we want to walk and we want to take our first step and it's like almost kind of can't even get our foot off the ground to step. I want to walk in newness of life. You know, and that's like this glue attaching my foot to stay right where I'm at. Why can't I change? Because the flesh is here. Because there's warfare here. There are things that need to be killed. And they're not going to commit suicide for you. You will have to bludgeon them to death. It will be ugly. It will be like a real war. It will be 15 rounds in the ring. But that's what we're called to. John Stott says, Indwelling sin is the lot of all the children of Adam. The privilege of the children of God is to have the indwelling spirit to fight and subdue indwelling sin. There's a difference. The battle is still there. Right? I put in your outline, the indicatives of God gives us the ability to overcome. They do not give us immunity from the influence of warfare. And this is where we get disillusioned. I thought God was going to do all these things and I'd have a new heart and that old heart would be removed and I get a new heart and I got the spirit of God present in me and I want to step out and do some things that God's calling me to do. Man, it's hard. I'm having a hard time putting that on. I'm having a hard time walking in it. I'm having a hard time sometimes being motivated by it. Listen, Christians don't become immune to the war. The war still goes on in this environment. Stott goes on and says, Why should we practice mortification? It sounds an unpleasant, uncongenial, austere, and even painful business. It runs counter to our natural tendency to soft and lazy self-indulgence. If we are to engage in it, we shall need strong motives. If we're going to get up in the morning and decide, today, I go to war. Today, the issues that have been in my life, that remain in the foothills, that are armed and wanting to take me out, today, I go to war against those things. If you're going to do that, you're going to pick a fight. And it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. And there's an aspect of you that wants to say, why do we want to do that? And that would be the desires of the flesh. The flesh doesn't want to go to war. Never wants to go to war. Because it's quite comfortable being at peace with sin. But the spirit in us wants to go to war. There's a desire. So I need strong motivation if I'm going to do this. My question in your outline is, what strong motives are in you that motivate you to mortify sin in your life? Remember, sin is there because it's, it's paying you dividends. Sin remains on the scene because there's some personal benefit being received from that sin. Otherwise, we would be done with it. Just like that. It wouldn't be tempting to us. But sin is there because I enjoy something about it. So what would motivate you to pick a fight with it and go out and destroy it? Well, how about the truths in Ezekiel 36? How about the reality that there has been given to me an internal indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is in me, who wants certain things, 
who wants to go to war. There's a spirit in me who wants to pick a nasty fight with sin. Wants to dominate it, wants to crush it the way Jesus did on the cross. Wants to bring that reality into my world. The spirit wants those things. See, this is, this is what comes with the spirit riding upon our hearts. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Notice this mortification in verse 13. This putting sin to death by the spirit. You know, what, what does that mean by the spirit? Does that mean we sit down in a chair? We watch the spirit. Fight sin for us. Cheer him on. Way to go. Bring me another lemonade when you get a moment. You know, I think by the Spirit means that the Spirit is in us motivating us. The Spirit is in us giving desire to fight. I want to fight that thing. See, this is the issue I have. A great concern that we have so separated our walk from the voice of the Spirit... That the only reason why, you know, why do these things? Why do these things? Because your irresponsibility is killing your family. That's why you do them. Okay, that, that's not a bad reason. I'll go for that. Are there other deeper reasons? Well, how about because the Spirit of God in you is screaming at you to do differently? The Spirit of God in you is compelling you. The love of God compels us, the Bible says. How about the fact that God is like a a bomb inside of us going off to live righteously inside of us? How about that? Is that true for us? Yes, it's true. We spent all those weeks studying it. It's absolutely true. Am I in touch with that? When I go bumping into this sin? Or do I need to find some reason that I can negotiate with my flesh about? Oh, this is bad because, you know, hey, biggest losers. Right? The, eating this way is bad because, you know, it, it's, 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 um, it's slowing me up. You know, I just don't have energy. Okay. Not a bad reason. I wouldn't discourage you from having that as a motivation at all. But it's almost like, okay, I need to negotiate with my flesh. My flesh will, will, will sign off on that. Yeah. My flesh will say, yeah, that's a good reason. That's a good reason. I get tired at the end of the day. That's, yeah, that's good. I don't want to be tired at the end of the day. See, almost like negotiating with our flesh to come up with a good reason. What about the fact that the righteousness of God that's in me, that loves righteousness, God is holy, says, I love righteousness. That life is in me, screaming at me to live righteously. Motivating me to live righteously. And whether I can come up with a personal orbital benefit or not, isn't even the question. The reality is, has the Holy Spirit come in our lives? If he's there, he's got his own motivations as to why we live the life we do. And his motivations are so much more powerful than anything we can come up with. Now, there's practical ramifications. We should live responsibly because our our sin has consequences on other people's lives and our own lives. Those are all decent reasons. But there's an ultimate reason by the Spirit that I get up in the morning, I pick a fight with sin, and we go to war every day. This realm includes a dimension of suffering. The suffering in this world. Right? Look in verse 17. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. See, this life of the Spirit takes place in the realm of suffering. Difficulty, challenge, discouragement. I like Douglas Moo's helpful insight about suffering. He says, These sufferings of the present time are not only those trials 
that are endured directly because of confession of Christ, for instance, persecution, but they encompass the whole gamut of suffering, including things such as illness, bereavement, hunger, financial reverses, and death itself. See, remember, Romans 8 is teaching us about life in the Spirit. And Paul has been careful to say, now listen, life in the Spirit for you right now is going to be in a certain location. Let me tell you about the location you're going to be living in. It's a location where the flesh exists. It still exists. Its loyalties are to Adam, not to Christ. That's where you're going to be living. It's a location where there's war taking place. There's a spiritual power in the world. The devil who is going to oppose everything that God is doing in your life. And he's going to raise up his warfare through the world and into your own flesh. There is suffering in this environment where you're called. There is weakness. He's going to go on a little bit later in chapter 8 and talk about the weaknesses that are in us. See, these are, this is the environment of life in the Spirit. This newness of life is going to get walked out in a setting where there's a great deal of friction involved. So that when I set out to live this life, I should not be described, uh, uh, surprised that my steps into this realm are slowly challenged. And I have a hard time separating myself from issues that are sinful in me and setting my foot in a new location because all these things are true in the environment in which we live. Now let me say one more thing that's true here before I run out of time. Look at verse 18. There's another realm of what's true in this environment. There's an issue of friction in this new life. There's an issue of limitation in this new life. All of this in the context of Romans 8, the life of the Spirit. For I consider, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of That is to be revealed. Not the glory that's revealed right now. Not the glory that exists right now. There is a glory being revealed right now. In all of our lives. But there's still something more to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Like God has done this. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Remember when we talked about this? Uh, You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Okay, how do you apply that in your life? Does that mean ultimately you are free from all things? You are just free from all things. Or is there any boundaries on that? Is there any limitation to that concept? Because this depicts a creation that's still waiting for a greater level of freedom that's yet to be experienced. Verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, do you remember where we started this? This is a man who says, wretched man that I am. 
Who will set me free? And then he looks at what Christ has accomplished and he says, that's who sets me free. That's who sets me free. And he who is set free is free indeed. That's who sets me free. The work of Christ sets me free. And then he begins to elaborate on what this freedom, this life in the spirit is going to look like in this setting. And he highlights all these dimensions of opposition and, and he highlights the fact that for the Christian, there still awaits a greater glory that is not contained in this realm. There is a glory contained in this realm. But there is another level and experience. And we hope for that. And it's not just that the world, the Bible says the whole world was subject to futility by God. And listen, you and I are, are coming in contact with futility all the time. And you drink it in through your flesh. And if you're not careful, you don't discern why it is you're tasting it. Right? Futility, it's like God has touched everything in this creation with a sense of dissatisfaction. Nothing in this world can satisfy you. If you've lived very long, you've noticed that already. Things that you thought were great, but they become dissatisfying. Relationships that you thought, ah, the sun rises and falls, and eventually you kind of feel like, well, I mean, it's okay, but you know, it's like there's got to be something more. There's that cry in us that there's got to be something more. We're looking for something more. Why is that? Why is that everybody's looking for something more? Because God, when humanity fell, God cursed all of creation with futility. And that sounds like a mean thing to do, doesn't it? That's not a mean thing at all. It was the grace and mercy of God to force us to look elsewhere in order to discover Him. See, if relationships satisfied me and money satisfied me and physical health satisfied me and all these things on earth satisfied me, I'd not look for God. I'd be satisfied. Well, you, people who are satisfied don't look. It's the dissatisfied who look. God in His mercy said, I'm going to make sure none of this stuff can ever satisfy you. None of it. That way you're going to keep looking. You keep looking so that you can find me. I love John Piper's thought here. He says, if there were no afflictions and difficulties and troubles and pain, our fallen hearts would fall ever more deeply in love with the comforts and securities and pleasures of this world instead of falling more deeply in love with our inheritance beyond this world, namely God himself. Suffering is appointed for us in this life as a great mercy to keep us from loving this world more than we should and to make us rely on God. See, God did this on purpose. The Bible describes in this passage that even we who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, so it's talking to Christians. It's, it's not just the world who tastes that emptiness of life. The Christian tastes it too. We experience these groanings in ourselves. We who have received the first fruits of the Spirit. See, first fruits is a picture. It's, it's the, when the, when the a farmer would harvest his crops, you know, it didn't all ripen at the same rate, right? I've got orange trees in my backyard and, you know, somewhere around October, November, they start turning orange. You can start eating some of them. We're still eating them now. So there's this first fruits that, that the harvest would come in and you'd say, you know what? This is the first all that is to come. Well, God says for us, the Holy Spirit in this world is the first fruits of all that is to come. But, now, just think about this for a second. As, as awesome as the Bible describes the operation of the Spirit of God in us right now, it's just the first fruits. It's, it's a sampler plate 
of all that is to come. So this is what I believe is, is correctly what, what Christ did. Christ did one thing that purchased for us a life in this realm and a life beyond this realm. He did one thing. This is where applying promises can become confusing. By his stripes, we are healed. Jesus is not going to have act two in order for us to produce and, and purchase the second realm of our glory. There's only one thing he was going to do. He came to this world, lived his life died on the cross, overcame death, and gives us the Holy Spirit. All that is a one-time act that has factors in it that are going to unfold. So God stands and looks at that one act, and he sees eternity, and he sees in us in eternity bodies that will never be sick, ever, never shed tears, and never be in any form of discomfort. But not in this realm. And he backs away and he says, by his stripes you are healed. Well, am I healed? Yeah. Where do you think that glorified body came from? The body you're going to get. The one that you set your hope in. Right? And you know, what, you know what sickness does in this body? It makes me remove my hope from this body, doesn't it? And set it in the one that I'm going to be getting. It turns my gaze to God. Disappointment in this realm, it, it dislocates me from setting my hope in this realm and makes me put my hope in a realm where there will never be disappointment, where there will be joy in the presence of God. There will be no sin. There will be nothing that's corrupt in that setting, but that is not this setting. And the life that Paul describes in Romans chapter 8 is a life that we are to experience in this setting within the boundaries of limitations. This is not heaven on earth. The operation of the Spirit in our life is a taste of heaven on earth. Gifts of healing make sense when you understand that. God is giving you a taste. When God heals your body and gives a gift of healing, He's giving you a taste of what you will get forever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your body is never supposed to become sick and never be vulnerable to sickness. See, that, that aspect of disappointment and frustration and difficulty, it's working an eternal weight of glory in our lives. It's keeping me from setting my hope right here, right now. It's keeping me from setting my hope in people, in the health of my body, in the size of my bank account. I mean, I have treasure in heaven, right? I have treasure in heaven from God, and he is adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. My hope is not in this world. Now, here's, here's where I want us to conclude. Well, we are out of time here. Why, why do these two books that I keep promoting become very important? I just make this point. I, just, I, need, a, I need a scripture to help me here, though. Ephesians chapter 5. I won't read this whole chapter. But the reality is for the Christian, I have been given a new life that I am learning to walk in. I'm walking in newness of life, but I am walking in newness of life in a fallen world. And I better be very wise about how I walk in that world. Right? This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, referring to the world. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take, listen, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Right? That's, that's what these books are helpful in doing. 
These books are helpful for us in, in sometimes the pace of our life, the way we live our life, and our lack of discernment in helping us to expose the unfruitful practices of the world that maybe we didn't realize we've been buying into those. We've been eagerly pursuing them. Our manner of living and, our, and the way in which we approach life and what we're seeking to have reward us is more about the world's way. And I love the title, the subtitle, Resisting the Seduction of a Fallen World. Right? When you get seduced by something, you're not going against your will. You're doing what you want. So worldliness and participating in the world in an unbiblical fashion will always have an element to it that feels like it's what I want. So these verses become very important to walk carefully. Look carefully, verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We're called to live in newness of life in the present age when the days are evil. The setting here is hostile. There is friction in this world. When you wake in the morning, the world is at work trying to take you down. Do you know how it's going to do that? Do you know what categories it will come into your life and to your family in order to take you down? Well, this would be wise things for us to study so that even in this world, we can walk in newness of life. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for the counsel of your word. Thank you for the realness of your word. Lord, thank you that these vast promises that you have made to us, Lord, that we are in this age empowered to live a life pleasing to you. We are, Lord. Lord, and then there is yet coming a day when we will know nothing different than living a life pleasing to you. We will not ever be tempted. We will not turn to the left or the right. We will have no desire at all. We will have no flesh to contend with. There will be no ideas of the world that are enticing and alluring. But that is not this day. Or this day, we must be wise in how we walk. For we want to, our deepest desire, Lord, for every person here who knows you, our deepest desire is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have given us. We want to walk in this newness of life here, now, in this fallen world, with all the issues that are part of this setting. But I pray this morning, I pray for some perhaps who have who have given in to disillusionment and discouragement because it has been their desire. They've wanted to walk in a manner worthy. They've wanted to live a life that's different than the one that they've lived. Lord, they've wanted freedom from their sin. They've wanted to put on righteousness and walk about in it. 
But Lord, that's not been the storyline of their experience in significant areas of their life. Instead, they've experienced failure and setback and difficulty. And it doesn't come easy and it doesn't seem to ever get done. Lord, I pray for encouragement this morning. And I pray that they would recognize there's a reason why it's difficult. God, I pray for fresh faith for those who have sought to apply these truths in their lives and found themselves just wanting to give up. I, just, I can't seem to get healed in my body. I can't seem to overcome that issue. And, and Lord, there's, there's some here this morning who quit. Somewhere along the road there, they just quit. Lord, would you take these truths and make them real? The Apostle Paul didn't find reason to quit in these verses. He found exciting joy in these verses. Oh, thanks be to God that there is an answer to the wretchedness that I'm experiencing. Thanks be to God that one day, one day, I will put this off completely. But now, right now, I go to war. Right now, I awake walk with my mind set on the spirit, not set on the flesh. I awake to put to death the deeds of this body by the spirit. Lord, thank you that your spirit is present here now in this age in a powerful, amazing way. Lord, thank you that that presence is greater than the presence of sin. Lord, thank you that your desires in us are greater desires than the desires of the flesh. God, thank you Thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God, thank you that that is true today. So Lord, though we experience resistance, though we experience setback, though suffering discourages us, though we encounter the weakness of this flesh and even the hostility of sin that dwells in our members, we are still called to walk now in newness of life. So, Lord, we thank you for these rich promises that will be fulfilled in us today. And there comes even a greater day of their fulfillment, Lord, that we long for. And our hope is set in you. And these momentary light afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's true. It's true now, Lord. It's true forever. God, encourage us with these promises. Lord, as we close in song, Holy Spirit, pray that you'd find us in this meeting. Lord, we could not hide from you. You will breathe a fresh wind upon those who have somehow thought of quitting. God, I just quit. No, Lord, we have every reason never to quit. Every reason never to quit. And, and, voice of your spirit inside of us is not saying quit those are not your desires God those are the desires of the flesh you're not interested in quitting God you want to raise up your righteousness in our lives as a demonstration that you are greater do that this morning give us fresh faith for that in Jesus name
see your glory a heart that worships you alone cleanse me forgive me for myself seeking that I might seek to make you known I want to serve you I want to please you my one desire is to see the name of Jesus lifted high above all things and the knowledge of your glory fill the earth to see the name of Jesus lifted high above all things and a fragrant offering ascending to the King in every place your heart your passion your heart your passion to give all name gladness and joy gladness and joy Jesus Christ rivers of blessing mercy and kindness purchased by your great sacrifice we join our voices to sing your praises our one desire is to see the name of jesus lifted high above all things and the knowledge of your glory fill the earth to see the name of jesus lifted high above all things and a fragrant offering ascending to the king in every place and a fragrant offering ascending to the king in every place Lord, that's our prayer. We turn to you, Lord, having heard your word. Lord, may our hearts receive it. May it find its way to, to be planted in the soil of our lives and bring forth fruit. Lord, in days and weeks and months and years to come, may we grow in the knowledge of the grace of God. May we grow in our experience of desiring you more and more so that we find ourselves saying with increasing vigor and conviction, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my life and you are my portion forever. May it be so in our lives, Lord. 
for your glory. Amen. Amen.